I, it's it's a great pleasure to to invite everybody to the um, the um, uh, second series of our seminars this year. Our guest is is Professor Eduardo Alas, um, and um, Eduardo joined uh, Centro as a um, uh, um, extraordinary professor last year. Um, he's um, written extensively and, and why um, we were particularly happy to have him in, in our ranks is um, uh, that he's is a sort of interdisciplinary scholar, both in, in areas of, of politics and law. So he has a wide perspective on these issues that we're dealing with. And certainly from, from our informal discussions and, and the contributions um, he's made to our, our previous um, seminars that, 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 that his, his, his wide ranging insights are, 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 are really helpful for, for comparative debates. I'm, I'm going to ask Eduardo just to briefly introduce himself before he starts. I've had a bit of technical error and I can't pull up um, his CV at the moment, but if he can just spend yeah. some time giving us the basics and then and continue with his talk. My apologies for that. Over to you, Eduardo. And Thank after you. he's spoken, Mario Jacobs will um, respond. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for the kind words. Uh, yes, I am uh, a professor of labor law industrial relations in Naples in Italy. And I teach as well uh, social and labor market regulations, which is a topic really more related to uh, social policies. So uh, this has to do with my background as a political scientist and as a lawyer that allow me allows me to uh, jump and to be in this condition of uh, having uh, several perspectives on different uh, social uh, policy or uh, labor law industrial relation issues. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to uh, share with you some thoughts about this crucial and topical issue of uh, representation and action, collective action of self-employed. Um, in the last meeting, we had already um, a discussion, a very lively discussion on the international framework and the South African situation on this topic, uh, I would try to uh, propose something uh, which can be complementary to that discussion, starting, of course, from the consideration that, in my view, and this is a vision shared by many of the participants to last meeting, in my view, of course, the uh, exclusion of self-employed from 
the scope of application of collective rights is basically against the ILO conventions and uh, more specifically uh, lack of any juridical and empirical and logical grounds. Uh, of course, the, the the major point here is uh, two major points. From the one hand, uh, the the social perspective or the industrial relation perspective, in which is not always to be taken for granted that uh, this self-employed or autonomous or dependent contractors, they really uh, like and need to be uh, collectively organized and represented. Uh, but on the other hand, there is the juridical issue, the fact that uh, going behind they, their, they, they desire or they need, of course, the, uh, the legal order, any legal orders, or at least at the multi-level perspective, uh, there should be a chance for them to unionize, to organize, and to act collectively. Uh, also in the perspective of uh, having collective bargaining or at least collective agreements, uh, which define some uh, basic common working conditions. So uh, the, the reflection on the real attitude for these uh, workers, we should say, uh, to be uh, collectively organized is something that I would I would leave to them to decide in a legal framework which allows them to organize if they want, if they need, if they so desire. So in a way, this is a typical uh, issue that could be seen from different angles. But at the end of the day, uh, the fact that uh, the legal order uh, provides for freedom of association and freedom to uh, bargain collectively, also in the view of fixing some uh, remuneration of their activity. It's of, uh, of crucial importance. Um, my perspective today would be uh, also to offer uh, a short overview of some very recent developments at the European Union level. Uh, first of all, uh, because of my hemisphere of origin, of course, Secondly, because I, I think that's in a way the, this development or these changes that we may observe uh, within uh, this supranational body as the European Union may be of some interest and some help for the ILO and the ILO Committee of Experts in supporting the case uh, of the uh, entitlement uh, of self-employed self to collective rights. Uh, the, it is, of course, difficult 
if not impossible, in a few minutes to provide you with a, any kind of synthesis on the situation in the European Union and in the, in the member states of the European Union. But in any case, there is a very lively ongoing debate on the boundaries of labor law. Uh, so the, the, the question is whether labor law should limit itself to uh, employees, so to workers as employees, or if labor law should uh, go further and be applied to all the protections uh, it usually entails to outside the employment relationship. And of course, in, in this point, uh, it is clear that uh, the uh, definition issue and uh, this kind of uh, definitory ballet starts, uh, everybody, everyone has his or her own opinion of the boundaries of the employment relationship, the notion of self-employment, and of course, this is not only a clear medical issue, this is also how the reality has developed and how the, uh, the labor markets uh, are now uh, configured uh, in the perspective of making such a distinction clear and undisputable if not undisputed. Mm. Of course, uh, further to the definitory issue, there is the, the point of competition law. Competition law is, uh, was at least at the beginning an uh, unexpected uh, flow of uh, the collective dimension of self-employment labor relations. Uh, maybe when uh, everything started at the European Union level, it was not that clear that um, the, uh, the idea of having kind of overlapping between uh, the undertaking and autonomous work, self-employment was so dangerous or so meaningful uh, in the perspective of collective representation action of self-employed. Uh, so the idea that uh, self-employed uh, were uh, all service providers and as service providers, they fall, fell within the scope application of competition law, which prohibits any kind of cartel or collective um, regulation of market condition. It was not that, that clear maybe at the very beginning, but it, it is rather clear that uh, since uh, this couple of decades, three decades, uh, this is a major issue when it comes to the EU level, but also at national level uh, for the unionization and the collective organization of self-employed. So for anyone who 
is not supposed to be in an employment relationship because this is of course the the main the main issue and when, when uh, and this is uh, since competition law at european level is a matter of eu legislation there is an exclusive competence of the uh, supranational level uh, it became, uh, of course, a, a national problem in all the member states. Uh, also because the, the, um, the so-called independent, independent authorities, which are regulated in the member states' national level competition law, uh, they were very eager to attack any, uh, any essay of self-employed people not in employment to organize. So it was this kind of authorities that uh, they uh, started uh, procedures and proceedings against uh, self-employed who try to organize, who try to be part of collective bargaining and agreements. And it was then for national courts uh, to um, ask to involve the Court of Justice of the European Union as a supreme uh, body uh, interpreting EU law, uh, to involve the Court of Justice just in order to know if this attack, this uh, negative attitude towards uh, unionization collective bargaining, collective action, self-employed, was justified at EU level. And the, the, the answer that the, the Court of Justice European Union uh, provided was rather, rather um, disappointing for people like me and us who support the uh, collective uh, action of self-employed because the court was very clear in saying well if they are real self-employed if they are genuine self-employed well there is no chance because they are undertaking under competition new competition law so there is no chance for them to have a legitimate aspiration uh, to uh, collective organization and action that will be against EU competition law. Because since they are undertaking, they cannot uh, build up a cartel. Uh, the court admit, well, maybe in some cases there are faults self-employed. So people uh, who for different reasons are labeled self-employed, but if we look um, in practice, uh, to their uh, the, the, the the main features of their work relationship, we discover that there are uh, actually employees, according to national law or even according to EU law, uh, when it defines workers in uh, in uh, opposition to self-employed or service providers. So this rather disappointing uh, position, I think, was uh, it, it was uh, not surprisingly adopted with reference to 
musicians. And that's uh, uh, bring us back to the, the first uh, seminar we had. Um, because musicians, of course, they, they uh, sometimes, sometimes they are employees of the orchestra. In that case was the Royal Dutch Orchestra. Sometimes they are substituted of the um, of the employees in, in the dead orchestra. So they, they were uh, they entered the orchestra as self-employed because they used to uh, work under the label of self-employment, uh, and they would like to, of course, profit from the um, the wage setting. The, the collective agreements provided for employees of that orchestra. Um, so it, it is clear that there are some uh, sectors in which uh, this issue is particularly uh, hot because of course there is a clear possibility for people to work, to exercise the same activity uh, as employees or as uh, self-employed. Um, so, uh, since that decision, which say back um, 10, 15 years ago, um, the debates at national, uh, at European national level was very heated uh, because it, it was clear that in and this is the, the social policy aspect that self-employed uh, autonomous workers, service providers, independent contractors, they, uh, they tried, they tried uh, hard to, uh, to define themselves as a collective, to define themselves as something more than a sum of individuals uh, and they try to organize. They organize actually, but the point is they, uh, that their collective agreements are against competition. Um, very recently, and this is my second point for today, very recently the Court of Justice was called once again to um, decide on a very uh, broad and sensitive issue, which is not necessarily linked to self-employed, uh, which is the application of uh, EU legislation on EU anti-discrimination law. Uh, it was a case of discrimination on grounds of sexual orientation, a Polish case in Poland, uh, a member states with some problems, let's say, with uh, the general approach the EU member states have towards uh, the fight against discriminations and equality uh, on the ground of, of sex, sexual orientation, and so forth and so on. Um, and th this is a very interesting decision of the court, because the court was called to um, to decide whether uh, this anti-discrimination legislation uh, applies also 
not only to employees, so to people in employment, but also to people in outside an employment relationship. And I would like here to share briefly my, my, my screen uh, in order to uh, show you something that's just not easier. I hope you can see it. It's all good, thank you, Prof. Yeah. I will try to make it as a presentation. Yes. Um, and this, just to give you briefly the context, because the context is interesting um, in order to understand what kind of self-employment or what kind of condition outside employment was the court was talking about. Uh, and it was a very specific case of somebody uh, providing its acti activity as an independent contractor, uh, but within was the broadcasting sector, uh, within a series of short-term contracts for a specific work, which is, of course, a limitation. I, I, I'm aware, which is a strict limitation of our perspective. So it's not self-employment in general. It's somebody who is in a rather strict relationship with one contractor. And uh, in these seven years, they had several short-term series, series of short-term contracts. And uh, there was also, so that the, the, this self-employed, if I may say, this worker was actually integrated within the organization of this broadcasting company, this TP, which is a public-owned uh, broadcasting company. So there was also a kind of organization, coordination of this uh, autonomous activity with the uh, structure of the broadcasting company. Uh, there was a kind of shift between two, at least two uh, self-employed uh, self-employed workers. So it's not a general reflection what I, I will propose to you, but there is something I think interesting also for the rest of self-employed to be highlighted. What, what is interesting here, uh, uh, if we leave aside the big technicalities, you can read on the slide, but the point is that uh, the Court of Justice says, well, uh, at you level, we, we have two different, we may have two different approach to uh, work relationships. Uh, there is one approach which is, which is the typical uh, focus on employment relationship in which it is clear that a worker is the weaker part of the uh, contractual relationship and it, it is protected uh, by labor law and could save. And there is another aspect which is related to anti-discrimination law 
uh, in the sense that anti-discrimination law uh, seems to have a wider scope of application, even when it comes to work relationships. So uh, it applies, uh, a contrario, but stay, not only when an, an employment relation is, is a stake, but and, and when there is a weaker part of, the, of the, this relationship, but also when there is something different, which I keep on calling self-employment. Uh, indeed, in the, in the idea of the court, this kind of anti-discrimination legislation is um, um, focused on any form of work uh, in the sense that focused on the capacity to contribute to uh, society through work, irrespective of the legal form in which work is provided. And this is a very, I think, a very important assumption. Um, and from this assumption, it follows that uh, the protection conferred by this anti-discrimination legislation is not, does not depend upon the categorization of an employment relationship. And uh, the fact that uh, there is uh, clearly uh, a, a kind of contractual relationships. In well, if this is very promising, because it, it means that there is a protection outside employment, outside the employment relationship, uh, does not mean, and this is maybe the, the, the most interesting, but also the, the worrying part of this reflection, uh, it does not mean that any, anything which is outside an employment relationship could be protected by a label law, we could say, or by anti-discrimination law. If you, if you like. But here there is a necessity, says the court, to distinguish uh, activities falling without the scope of anti-discrimination law and from those activities consisting in the mere provision of goods or services. And this is the, the crucial point. So we should think that the, we have a at least two uh, different kinds of self-employment or autonomous work. In the sense that from the one hand, there, are, there is a provision of goods or services, which is not deemed to be, uh, uh, to fall within the scope of application of anti-discrimination law, I should say. And there is another part of self-employment, which does, fall within the scope of application and maybe does fall within the scope of application of uh, labor law in general. And this happens when the activities are uh, generally pursued in a context of a legal relationship characterized by a degree of stability. I think this is the, the most interesting point, the crucial point of this. Uh, position of the, the court justice. So the, uh, we need a certain degree of stability of the relationship, should not be a spot 
relationship, the provision of a service once and never more, there should be a kind of framework, of legal framework, of contractual framework within which the, this relationship is continuously renewed, which is, of course, a very strict limitation of the scope of such a reflection. Well, what, what, what's the case at stake? Well, what, when we, could we say that there is this kind of continuity? Well, you can really hear some indicators. I don't want to go in, uh, too much into detail, but the idea was that this person was uh, for seven years involved in a, this kind of self-employment relationship provision services uh, within which his performance was also assessed and positively, positively evaluated by uh, the broadcasting company. So this is something in between, if, we, uh, if I may say, the employment relationship, the hierarchical subordination and the autonomy, uh, the provision of service, uh, an activity which is in no way linked to the organization of the contractor. Something that is not unknown in the European landscape, at least if I see it from an Italian perspective, because we have, we have since decades, this kind of coordinated work, coordinated autonomous work. Um, well, in this case, says the court, the court uh, this is a relationship falls within the scope of discrimination. Uh, coming back to, 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 to the, the, the core issue of this, of this uh, presentation, well, how, how uh, does it impact on the collective dimension? Well, it is clear in my view that if uh, we kind of self-employment uh, Self-employment, like the, the kind stake in this decision, um, well, it is rather clear that um, not only anti-discrimination law but also labor law and collective labor law should apply. And this could be of some help, for instance, if we uh, broaden a bit our view from the broadcasting sector, for instance, to the food delivery, there be some help in recognizing the right of so-called riders to uh, unionize, even if they are deemed to be self-employed, because they are clearly in this kind of framework relationship or series of relationship and contractual relationship with the platform, if not with uh, the customer. So to, to conclude, I uh, apologize for being probably too long. Uh, there is a hope. Uh, I, I think that, that, that there is um, 
this decision of the Court of Justice is not decisive at all, but uh, it seems to me that uh, it opened up, it opens up to a different consideration of the, the juridical situation and also the needs of uh, self-employed, even if it is restricted to um, people who are not false self-employed, but clearly uh, uh, are in a way integrated into the organization of the contractor, not in a hierarchical perspective, not in a subordinated way, but at least they are, their activities coordinated by and with the activity of the contractor. Uh, so thank you very much for your attention. I hope it could help and clarify this very difficult relationship between labor law and self-employment. Um, thanks very much, Eduardo. Um, and thank you. Know, um, no, I need to apologize. You certainly kept to the time frame and, and, and for um, such an incisive overview of, of those European developments. Um, let me do a better job of introducing our respondent, Maria Jacobs. Uh, Maria is at um, the uh, Lord of Development and Governance at UCT, which is also into disciplinary, both being um, in the commercial law department and sociology. And Mario, before um, pursuing his research career, was for 24 years a union official. And he now has um, two master's degrees, one from UCT and one from a Brazilian university, and is, is pursuing his um, PhD besides um, his full-time job. And um, prior to say, I was one of his lecturers during his UCT um, Masters. Over to you, Maria, to um, respond to, to Eduardo's talk and to give us some um, domestic perspectives. Thank you, Paul, for that um, rather generous um, introduction. Uh, I'm not sure that um, I'm worthy of some of those comments, but thank you. Um, I, I want to start by, by saying the following. Uh, I find myself attending a civil society meeting in, in, in Accra. And the discussion is around the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. And I mean, Eduardo was speaking about competition law. And, and over the last few days, we've been dealing with competition law investment and trade regimes and the like. And you find representatives of civil society organizations arguing that collective bargaining um, in many instances stifle both investment as well as trade between countries. Um, so I find that rather strange, one would expect civil society organizations to advocate for a greater form of collective bargaining that should exist within their um, nation states. But then again, we, we all may not have similar views around some of these matters. Um, I've asked um, the central staff to share my presentation. Uh, I'm doing a presentation simply because I'm hoping 
people were more focused on the presentation than to hear to say on the subject. Um, so, Ivona or Leonori, if you can possibly share the presentation. So, following on from Professor Alice, um, my job is to sort of bring the discussion home, home in the context of South Africa, um, but more looking at it from a collective bargaining lens. So if we can move to the next slide. Um, can we move to the next slide, please? Okay, so what is the problem? I think we generally accept that in terms of employment law, including that of collective bargaining, that workers deemed to be independent contractors or those engaged in non-standard employment relations are outside of the scope of labor law. So the protection that labor law offers them or certainly offers those classified to be employees um, doesn't apply to those deemed to be independent contractors or generally those who work in external employment relations. Now, what role should trade unions play in terms of advancing the interests of workers, whether they are core workers or falling under the periphery? Now, I think it's important to make the point that organized labor in South Africa for the last two decades um, developed or adopted a resolution where they profess that they will begin to organize and bargain on behalf of workers falling in external employment relations, uh, your informal category of workers or workers are deemed to be independent contractors. Um, unions have not been able to do so. Um, we, we see some developments taking place in other parts of Africa. Um, in fact, next to us in Zimbabwe, um, unions have started organizing informal workers, um, workers that are deemed to be independent contractors, but we're not seeing that um, taking shape in South Africa. And, and part of that is the definition of a trade union in the Labor Relations Act. Now, a trade union is an association of employees, meaning if you are not an employee, you're not in a position to belong to a trade union. You can call yourself by whatever other name, but you're certainly not in a position to either be a member of trade union, alternatively for trade union, to recruit you as part of the general membership base. Now, taking that to the collective bargaining space, we, we should go to section 23, dealing with labor relations in general, but subsection five of the constitution of 96, and there it is stated that every trade union employer's organization and employer 
as the right to engage in collective bargaining, unquote. The effect of that particular constitutional provision is that only trade unions or employees organizations and an employer can engage in collective bargaining. So in the case of Zimbabwe, where that particular legislation permits for workers' committees to be established, you, you don't have a similar provision either in the Constitution or in the Labor Relations Act. In South Africa, it is only a trade union representing the interests of workers um, that can engage in collective bargaining. No other form of organization um, can engage in collective bargaining. And obviously, as I pointed out earlier, um, a trade union by definition is an association of employees, thereby excluding independent contractors and similar forms of workers. Uh, next slide, please. There are, however, some positive developments. Um, for example, the National Minimum Wage Act that came that was passed in 2018, came into effect on the 1st of January, 2019, covers all workers. So that would include an independent contractor, an own account worker, et cetera. It draws distinction between what we just spoke about now, which is an employee and another category of workers. So the National Minimum Wage Act is the first piece of labor legislation um, that has a broader definition of work being performed as opposed to that which labor law concerns itself, uh, that is being in employment relationship. So, so that is certainly a positive development. And Paul made mention central session, but I think it's important to also note that there are current discussions taking place um, at the level of the National Economic Development and Labor Council, where the social parts um, are in, and certainly based on a proposal submitted by organized labor, that they want to review the definition of employee in all labor statutes to ensure that the coverage of atypical workers and non-standard workers are indeed covered. The understanding from engagements with organized labor representatives is that they seek to have something similar to what is contained in the National Minimum Wage Act. I, I, I must make the point to say that these are initial discussions um, at the level of NEDLAC and it will be premature to suggest what the outcome of those discussions um, may result in terms of a resolution on either a new definition or um, as we now would call it hybrid definitions of what's, what that may uh, mean in the future and how that is to be applied. Um, uh, next slide, please. They, they are obviously existing legislative provisions that could be relied on. And I make the point here that legislative provisions exist um, in, in a number of areas. Um, 
and, and without necessarily going into the detail of that, the, the one concern I think that needs to be expressed is the extent to which in the example of section 83 of the BCA, organized labor or civil society organizations are in a position to, let's call it, persuade minister to deem particular categories of persons to be employees. So section 83, subsection one of the Basic Conditions of Employment Act um, permits for the Minister of Employment and Labor to deem any category of persons specified in that purpose to be an employee. And naturally what flows from there is if those categories of persons are deemed to be employees, the general application of labor law will apply to them. Um, next slide, please. So what is happening in the collective bargaining space? And the question is posed, uh, do we have some form of provision where independent contracting workers are currently protected by existing minimum wage instruments, collective bargaining instruments? And, and I want to make two examples. Uh, the one is sectoral determination seven, which is a sectoral determination covering domestic workers. Um, just for, for those that may not, a sectoral determination is issued by the Minister of Employment and, and Labor for particular sectors or areas of the economy. And it normally follows um, an investigation uh, previously done by the Employment Conditions Commission, now undertaken by the National Minimum Wage Commission, and it set down certain minimum employment standards that must be uh, complied with within that particular sector or area for, for which the, the sectoral determination becomes applicable. So in case of sectoral determination seven, which covers domestic workers, it also covers independent contractors. So in terms of that particular scope, it specifically mentions independent contractors falling under the provision of the sectoral determination. Um, so that is done under the provisions of the Basic Conditions of Employment Act. When you seek to, I mean, um, move to the Labor Relations Act, the, the National Bargaining Council for the Road Freight and Logistics Industry makes provision for some parts of that particular collective agreement or main agreement apply to independent contractors or the wording they use is own account workers, essentially um, so it's much the same in terms of the, the nature of the uh, contracting party or parties. So there are some bargaining accounts provisions, um, not just in the National Bargaining Council for the Road Freight and Logistics Industry, but others also um, covering the scope of independent contractors within the parameter particular bargaining council. Um, 
Um, it is also noteworthy to note that the National Minimum Wage Commission um, recently published in the government gazette and, and asking for interested parties to make representation on establishing a sectoral determination for health care workers. Now, I noticed that the interested individuals as part of a particular webinar um, that I'm sure will be representation on that particular investigation. There may very well also be an argument that healthcare workers should simply be absorbed in the public service. In fact, there, there was uh, an interesting judgment delayed how Teng the court by an acting judge called um, Paul Benjamin who in that particular application um, determined that those workers indeed should for and be employed by the Gauteng Health Department. Um, I've, I've certainly not seen um, similar judgments or judges being brave enough to um, issue rulings of that nature, but whether we are less comfortable with their biggest total termination for our workers, I certainly think it is a step in the, in the right direction where workers previously deemed to be independent contractors will certainly enjoy some form of protection um, and hopefully um, organizations organizing within that particular space would be able to advance the collective bargaining agenda of healthcare workers and similar kinds of um, workers in such kinds of services. Um, the next and I think the last slide. Can we move to the, the next slide, please? Uh, not that one, the one before. <laughs> uh, no, no, there's one, there's one last slide before the end. Can anyone hear me? Sorry, Mario, I'm just getting to that slide quickly. Is this it? Uh, the one day after. That one. That's that's. Thing bargaining councils could not cover certain businesses. Um, and, and here I make the 
for the road freight and logistics industry. Now, the scope of this bargaining council includes the move a particular item to point B for reward. That's covered under the scope of the Uh, Sorry, Mario, could you please repeat that you're breaking up? We don't have load shedding here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm making the example of the National Bargaining Council for the Flight and Logistics Industry, and in particular, the scope of that bargaining council, which includes the delivery of goods from point A to point B for reward. And you look at a company called Take-A-Lot or um, similar companies. The nature of that particular company's business is the delivery of goods from point A to point B for reward. I would argue that even though that company would operate within the space of what people call a platform economy or the economy that the niche of that particular business could easily fall within the scope of the National Bargaining Council for the Road Freight and Logistics Industry. It does, however, presents a number of problems. Um, one is that if you were to locate them under that bargaining council, the question of representativity of both the employer component to that bargain council, as well as the representativity of the trade unions to that bargain council becomes a contested terrain. Um, already the unions within that bargain council as, as its total representation just over 20%. And, and I can say that because I mean, we currently, oh, and one of the the data we we looked at was the status of Wagner Council significantly dropped, um, meaning that there's greater reliance on the employer bodies in order for that bargaining council agreement to be extended. So I'm making the point. Um, that one, you could probably locate a company like Take-Lot to fall under the scope of that bargain council. But if, if you do so, it raises a number of other questions. And I think um, these are the kinds of matters that um, warrant further research and investigation um, to see the extent to which we are able to find ways and means to either one, protect and secondly, advance the interests of those workers deemed to be in. I will stop there. Uh, thanks very much, Mario. Um, thanks for a very detailed and, and thorough response. Um, <clears throat> uh, locating both the broader debates and I think the, you know, one of the points you make is that the question of, of protection is, is often um, a complex issue in, you know, raising different issues 
in different sectors. Thanks for your kind words on my judgment on the healthcare workers. Um, since then, I haven't been invited back to act in the Labour Court, although I don't think it's got anything to do with that judgment. Um, I did put in a note to indicate um, if anyone wants to contribute to the debate, but um, I hope none of you will be offended if I immediately ask uh, Manfred Weiss um, if he would like to um, contribute, um, having, having a scholar of his international reputation and generosity in our seminars is, is, is an honor. So I think if you wish to add something, Manfred, please do so. Well, thank you, Paul. Uh, first of all, uh, I fully agree uh, with my friend Eduardo. Uh, he has given you uh, a very good uh, uh, perspective of what's going on with us. Well, if I may add uh, a few comments. The first one is that, of course, we have to not only question labor law and ask the question whether we have to extend the coverage. We also have to question competition law because we have to go back to the reasons why we do have competition law. And we do have competition law to make sure that there is fair competition, meaning that there will be no power structures, no monopolies, no oligopolies and so on. But this of course has nothing to do with the kind of musicians who are self-employed, you know? And therefore I think we have, we have not only uh, to adjust labor law, but we also have to adjust uh, 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 competition law. My second remark refers to the powers of the European Union. Unfortunately, you know, the power to legislate on collective bargaining is not with the EU for reasons which I can't go into. When we had the, the reform, the amendment in 92, the so-called Maastricht Amendment, these things are excluded. By the way, on a push, the employers associations and the trade unions, because they wanted to keep out the EU from collective bargaining, from strike and lockout, and from pay, you know, which I think uh, was a big mistake. And this, of course, now leads to the fact that the European Union only can make recommendations what should be done, how should this be treated. And then they made a sort of communication where they say, okay, we cannot legislate, but we will not intervene if in such and such and such cases, self-employed are included in collective bargaining, which shows you the kind of, well, legislative problems the European Union as a supranational entity has. 
I think I leave it with this. I could make lots of comments, but we don't have time for that. Um, thanks, Manfred. Um, is there anybody else um, wanting to, to put their hands up? I see, Eduardo, your hand is up. Do you want to, to respond? No, it was just an applause to Manfred. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any, anybody else? Uh, um, don't, don't be daunted by the... Um, uh, Debbie Collier, uh, your hand is... Uh, that's a hand. Debbie, that's a hand. Director. That's a hand, Paul. Um, so maybe just... Yeah, um, just in terms of... ILO developments and where they're going with the instruments and what is the impact of it. You know, the convention, if you look at the convention one, for example, the scope of application, um, it's, you know, how is, how do we kind of work backwards? And if we are looking at providing protection in the world of work, I don't have the convention in front of me, but you know, it makes reference to um, member states ensuring that workers who are covered by the convention have the opportunity to engage in collective bargaining. It's almost kind of the future trying to, you know, um, changes to the past. How do you, you know, does that give us an inroads or does it, I just, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm, really making myself clear, but it, you know, it, it seems like the more recent instruments are more progressive in the sense of covering workers more broadly, but how do we, how do we get that to talk back to instruments that, that have been more restrictive? Um, so that was just really one yeah, observation more than, but maybe um, Eduardo and Manfred have you know, kind of thought about that a bit more broadly um, in their context, but then also, um, yeah, just Mario's comment um, about civil society's responses in the context of discussions around the Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is a little bit concerning, um, uh, you know, about the, the potential impact of um, collective bargaining on trade, investment and competition law. Um, and I wonder if that's unique to our context where, you know, collective bargaining and trade unions are seen as a barrier and therefore something to be regulated, or if that's kind of been seen in other uh, regional arrangements. Um, so, yeah, just two thoughts, really. Uh, Mario, I see your hand is up. Uh, yeah, I know. Debbie, I agree it's concerning, um, especially coming from civil society organizations. Um, but let me let me introduce something that I know, I know Manfred has got a particular concern about, in, in, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. Um, foreign law, I mean, we, we just recently completed this on the German due diligence within the auto um, value chain in South Africa, Africa, Ghana, and Kenya. You, you have this United Nations um, guidelines on corporate governance, corporate responsibility. You have uh, the law in France to 
you have the EU directive, similar legislation in terms of the UK modern slavery effort and so forth. Interestingly, many of those instruments, and to us that would not international law unless we become so our legislative framework allows for our courts to consider foreign law. But over and above that, social responsible legislative framework that exists in other parts of the world is imposed on us. And it gets imposed on us because of the value chain that exists between the the headquarters of whatever company in let's use Mercedes Benz Africa, which is Daimler in in Germany. So when you supply Daimler, you must certain certain human rights standards, including environmental standards, including labor standards. So it recognizes the right to freedom of association. And more importantly, it recognizes the right to engage in collective bargaining. It's a more positive right to the right that we have in our um, labor framework. And Daimler or Mercedes-Benz Africa must ensure that they comply with um, those provisions. Um, naturally, if there's a dispute about the application thereof, then the domestic law um, takes um, interpretation over the law that exists in Germany. Um, I make this point simply because it's an entry point. And if you are able to put pressure on the Works Council in Germany at Daimler, for example, you could have a situation where the subsidiary is compelled to follow what the Works Council uh, direct them to do if unions in that particular space is not in a position to um, you know, get the rights that otherwise would have existed. I'm, I'm making that as an example, and I accept that yes, it is foreign law, but foreign law or the application of foreign law is provided for both under the constitution, under the LRA. And I think it's a means that one could use to um, at least get your foot in the door, so to say, uh, let me stop there. Hi, Eduardo, and then Manfred, can you contribute? Yeah, I would like, I would uh, like to say. <laughs> yeah, please, I... Manfred. Please, Manfred, go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, Mario, uh, you may remember that last year in Stellenbosch, I already reacted to this, and I agree with you. But therefore, I think we should not have these kind of laws of the different countries for global value chains. We have, as you know, an in initiative <coughs> going on in the United Nations Human Rights Council. And there we have already now the third draft of the working group and if you look to this graph, it would really, well, uh, react to what you say. The problem is only 
that so far we do not know whether that draft ever will be a convention because or an international uh, treaty, I should say, because there is enormous resistance by uh, the industrialized countries, uh, I have to say. And we have to overcome this kind of resistance. And then we might get a sort of global structure where we do not impose anymore uh, things on other countries, but where we have a sort of structure which is globally agreed. Uh, this, of course, would be the goal we have to achieve, but it's not easy to achieve. Thanks, Manfred. Eduardo? Yeah, um, I would like to react to, to Debbie's comment. Well, I, I think that um, above all in some specific fields like uh, safety and health and harassment, as you mentioned, like anti-discrimination law, uh, there is a, a clear trend to uh, make the uh, categorization of work relationships uh, irrelevant. So there is a clear tr trend to uh, an application of those provisions uh, to whenever uh, form and kind of work or occupation uh, is concerned. Um, so the, the, the answer is yes, from the one hand, uh, maybe from the other hand, when it comes to uh, working condition, which has uh, a sense and an impact from the economic point of view, in a common point of view, that could be more difficult. And I totally agree with Manfred when he said uh, competent law should ask itself what, uh, what is the, the, the real meaning of uh, some restriction and uh, what is the real meaning of imposing restriction on people who are, have clearly nothing to do with any uh, entrepreneurial initiative as such. Um, let me say something about this legislation on value chains and, uh, well, I, I think that's, uh, and, and there again, I agree, totally agree with Manfred. National legislation is a bad medicine. It's a bad medicine because it, it, it also has a, a risk of neocolonialism. Yes. So the fact that uh, when, when you, I, I, if I understood well, uh, you, Mario, you said it is imposed. Yes, it is imposed. And this is, this is a point you, 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 you cannot forget because um, I think that it's very dangerous to, to make such transplantation of uh, industrial relation models, legal approach in countries with different history and also different uh, outlook on the future. So it, it, it means that this is something that comes from the outside. And even if foreign legislation is accepted for, for, from the, by the courts, uh, it doesn't mean that the, the courts could be uh, really able to uh, apply it or to interpret it in a positive and effective means. So uh, I, I'm very, uh, I'm very reluctant and, and I, I, I'm, I'm very uh, positive 
towards the, the this international or supranational uh, intervention if i if i could say i i would prefer a regional intervention instead of a, a broad uh, global one because also in in that case the compromise will be very very difficult to reach and the result may be uh, not that uh, not that effective that's it thank you All right, everybody. Um, can I just throw the floor open to, to anybody else who would like to contribute? I don't see any hands, but if anyone wants to raise a hand. Manfred, any final words from you? No. Well, thanks. Um, yes, well, thanks very much, everybody, for, for once again, uh, um, a very interesting and, and, and stimulating debate.